My name is Bill Shannon. I've been here on staff at Grace Church for 31 years. Uh, some of you men weren't even born yet, but I've been here for 31 years, and um, I'm overseeing the biblical counseling ministry here. I teach it. Uh, we do it. Um, I happen to, happen to be a fellow in the ACBC um, uh group and uh, can help folks get certified. And so that's what we're about doing here is get getting people on board to be able to do counseling for us so that we don't have to do all of it. Uh, because if we were to try to assign it to pastors, we'd have nothing else to do but counseling. I don't, I don't know if you know that, but that's what would happen. You would just be doing counseling. And so uh, we can't do that. So we have lay folks that come alongside us. Uh, besides me is uh, Tom Patton. He's actually to the right of me upstairs. And uh, so, um, but he's been here. I don't know. Tell everybody how long you've been here and what you do. Well, I first came to Grace Church in 1991 when I got saved. And this was the first church that I actually really attended. I got on staff at 2001 and have been serving here since then. Uh, I'm doing pastoral ministry here, pastoral care. We sometimes call it congregational care because we don't really take care of pastors. We take care of the congregation. And what we do here is... We we hopefully take care of them sometimes. (laughs) We try to take care of each other when we can. Um, But I handle also... um, People who are sick, people who are dying, uh, bedside uh, opportunities to be with them, be with their families, counsel them, uh, hospital visitations, of course, which includes memorials. Um, And really also, and Rick and I also share something with uh, homebound saints that can't come here anymore because of either physical or other issues in their life. And so we get to come alongside those people who are uh, in desperate need, who need care, and uh, the Lord has allowed us to have that ministry, and it's a true privilege. And then also, all of the pastors here, we all have a fellowship group as well. Bill pastors a group along with Carl Hardgrove, uh, and I have a group with Dr. John Street as well that Rick is a part of, and uh, that's what I do here. Rick, what do you do? Nothing. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, Rick, let's not be honest. I mean... <laughs> Well, I've been here since 1980, which is amazing. I got saved. Uh, I grew up in Studio City, which is about 10 minutes from here. My best friend was attending this church who was a believer that had a big input in my life, me being a Christian. So I started coming here in 80 when I was young, and we were all young, right, Bill? And so, um, and uh, that was back when Pastor John talked a little faster, and uh, he was a little more feisty up there at the pulpit than he is now. But uh, no, it was so, and then uh, I decided to go back to school. In my 30s, and uh, went to seminary, and ended up being the man they wanted me to oversee our disabled ministry. Uh, so I oversee our disabled ministry. We've had it here for over 40 years. Um, that's been a huge blessing, um, huge change in my own personal life, uh, working with these people. And then it's been a joy to work with alongside Tom and Bill. Also, that's a huge joy. And then we started an Alzheimer's support group a few years ago. Um, So that's been a a new addition we have here, trying to help families that are dealing with uh, dementia or Alzheimer's. And then I work with um, Tom and the shut-in ministry we have. We try to reach out to those elderly people that can't come to church anymore. They're homebound, and we try to minister to them. Great. Thank you. Why don't I open up with a word of prayer, and then uh, we can uh, get started. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this uh, Shepherd's Conference. 
that uh, you have given to us, Lord, the opportunity for us to meet other men who are in ministry, to be able to pray for them because of uh, what the ministry entails, Lord, and to be able to see, Lord, you continue to do a work in our lives uh, to make us the men of God that you want us to be. We pray that this uh, session would be used by you to encourage these men in the ministry of care uh, to those who need it in our congregations. We pray this in your name. Amen. The first question that I had for these men, and uh, I'm going to ask it, is if you um, could do something different in your ministry, what would you do, you know, for the care of those? I mean, if, if you had untold amounts of money, you know, if you actually had, you know, the government's money, what would you do? question. <laughs> well, we're working on something, and that's going to be benefiting all of you, uh, hopefully. We're working on three different manuals to give to people when they come to a time of crisis. One has to do with how to prepare for death in terms of first spiritually, but then also uh, with the matters of collecting your life together, everything from finances to uh, property to every single thing, uh, death certificates. Uh, we're, we're really far along with that. We've almost got that done. Uh, we're also working on a book of grieving, uh, how to grieve. Uh, there's books out there and resources. I think even Bill's going to bring up one for you that's uh, helpful. But we're going to try to take all, or we are taking all of what Pastor John has said over the years about grieving and that process and put it into a manual that we can give to our people. Uh, that will also be available for other churches as well. And then um, we're also working on just something about a devotional, a day-to-day devotional that helps people go through the process of grieving. And so it's basically like going through one year, uh, one day at a time with a section from uh, a passage of Scripture, John's comments on it, uh, suggestions for prayer, but really trying to focus on uh, suffering and grieving in that process. So that's what we're trying to do. We'd like to do more of that. Um, So we're attempting to do that, but it hasn't been done yet. Rick, if you could do something, what would you do if you had... It's a good question. Um, I think I would love to have um, some group homes in the area that were Christian-run. We have a lot of our uh, disabled people that we minister to uh, not, are not able to live with their families anymore for many different reasons. So they have to live in these group homes, and a lot of these group homes are run by people that are, you know, maybe not the greatest. Some of them have, uh, you know, they, there's can be some mistreatment in there. I would love to have some Christian group homes. Obviously, that's we're talking about a lot of money. I know, Bill, you've got some money you can help me with there. But. <laughs> I, I do. I do. I have a dollar twenty-nine in my office. And <clears throat> so that would be I think, really something I've been, you know, thought about. And then also just coming out with a book uh, that would be more biblical on disabilities. I don't know if there's anything out there really that's really a, a good theological book on disabilities that needs to be written. So I don't know if I would be able to do that, but that would be nice to have something like that. And uh, some of you may be... Um, um, familiar with the Faith Bible Church up there in Lafayette, Indiana. They have some of these homes. And uh, Steve Byers, who happens to be the senior pastor there, is taking me around to show me where they have these homes. And, and they have these older folks that are in there. they got them all uh, handicapped by access, all of that kind of stuff. And it's just an absolute blessing to me when I saw that. Uh, and, and then they have a, a home there for uh, single women who uh, have children. And those women are the ones who help in that ministry. 
And so it's just uh, doing hand in hand. We're in Los Angeles County. Property here is a little bit too expensive to do something like that. But that would be a dream. So for anybody here who has an extra dollar twenty nine, we'll take it and we'll uh, put it to use. Um, if I could do anything else in my ministry, I'd have more people that could do counseling. And I'd, I'd have more rooms where people could be counseled. We, uh, we just have a certain number of rooms because this place is pretty busy during the week. Every room in this church is being used almost all the time up until uh, 9 or 10 o'clock at night. And so um, that's what I would hope for. We, we have a, a property that we'd like to buy down the road here, but uh, they will not uh, release uh, even though we ask them to release. But uh, that would be something that we could do. Uh, and we could have more of an outreach towards uh, counseling. I don't know about you, but my counseling ministry becomes outreach sometimes uh, because so folks are coming in. And they don't know that they're not even a believer. They think just by going to church that somehow they're a Christian. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but uh, that's happened quite often <clears throat> where somebody would come in for counseling and then they discover, I, I don't think I know the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, that happens uh, quite often. So uh, we uh, we have those privileges of being able to see them come to Christ. Um, Another question, and we're going to get to your questions in a minute. What blesses you about your ministry? Well, obviously, to me, I think it should be obvious that um, it's it's wonderful to help people in their time of need. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's really amazing to me that people really don't know and haven't prepared for um, the hardest times that come. Uh, they are trusting in the Lord. They're trying. They're going to Scripture. They're praying. But they really don't have true guidance um, until you come alongside them, until you really speak to them. So when I, I, you know, people are blessed because we care for them in a way that's, I think, natural for us. And yet they are so surprised, so blessed, so taken aback that we have compassion, that we have um, interest that we try to go above and beyond. Um, we get notes from people that, uh, and that's always encouraging. And I guess that would be the word. When people are encouraged by what we do, that sustains me. You know, more often than not, I have this question maybe every week. Uh, people go, how can you do what you do and, and be able to not be you know, drastically affected by it? And my answer has always been, well, I have a great home that I go home to. I love to go home, and you have to protect your home so that you have a home that you want to go home to. I love my kids and my wife, and we've worked very hard to keep that. Um, But honestly, the question is asked because it is hard. You know, Paul said that the daily burden of the church was upon him. And, you know, far being away from the Apostle Paul, but even in my own life, in our life, I feel that restraint. I feel that, that, that weight and that gravity upon me because people's hearts are broken. So when it's something that we can give to them, when we can help them with a simple either being counseling, whether it be just providing uh, the means for a memorial service and, and just serving, just going there and preaching the Word of God to them and trying to encourage them about uh, especially when their family members uh, were believers. Um, it's just a true, true blessing. So, it, you know, you don't get into pastoral ministry for the money. I, I don't hope you didn't. Uh, you, don't, <laughs> you don't get into pastoral ministry for the praise because that's sometimes, uh, there's droughts of that. But you, you do get into it to serve the Lord. And then when you see God's people uh, encourage you, I think that's the greatest gold. Rick, what blesses you? Well, it's interesting. Uh, working with disabled people was not something I thought I was going to do. Uh, 
when I graduated from seminary, but it's been a huge blessing to serve these people. I, they have taught me about joy, contentment, patience. Um, they're funny. They're, um, you know, just getting to know them, it's just a joy. It's just a real blessing. And getting to know their parents, the ones that have to take care of them, because it's a difficult time for parents raising a disabled child. It's a 24-7 uh, deal what you're looking at, but uh, just ministering to the parents and encouraging them is a joy. And then visiting shut-ins is a great joy too, because you're visiting people that have, many of them have been involved in our church for years, and now they're living in a home or living in a care facility, and, and sometimes their kids don't visit them. So just to go out and visit them for a short time and pray with them, and sometimes tears will be coming down their eyes, and you know, I'm, I'm, we're not doing anything. We're just coming out trying to see them, and that is a joy just to, to be able to have an impact on their lives. So um, I think we would all say here that we're blessed to, to do what we're doing in this church. Um, I think of the scripture, 1 Timothy 1.5, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And I, I think that's what we um, are blessed by is that we just bring the word of God just to try to affect lives, and then you see them affected. I mean, I have some people that I have counseled that are now doing counseling. I mean, I, I've had a woman who came into my office who was pregnant with another man's child, and the husband take her back, and she's now doing counseling. I mean, how, how does that happen? It only happens in the church, and it only happens when, when we see those kinds of things as we continue to plow the, the field, so to speak. Um, what I'd like to do now is to open up questions to you. If you have a question, please raise your hand. I will repeat it so that it gets recorded and make sure that I've heard it correctly and these men have heard it correctly. Yes, sir. I think that's an excellent question. When you give out advice during a counseling situation and people don't listen to you, basically is what you're saying. They're not going to listen to you. Has anyone ever had? (laughs) You you don't have them listen to you most of the time. You really don't. Um, I I can remember one session I was talking about with somebody earlier today. Husband and wife came in. I asked them for their testimony. I listened to her testimony first because it's always ladies before gentlemen. And and I said, I don't know that she's even a Christian. Then I hear his testimony, and he says, but there's one thing I, I don't do. I don't believe that Jesus is God. And I said, well, I know you're not a believer. See, I'm, I'm going to do that immediately, but I don't know about her yet. And so we begin to, to do some counseling for their marriage because it's falling apart. And at the same time, I'm telling him about Jesus is Christ. For six weeks, he's arguing with me. Seventh week, he comes in, and he says, I, I believe like you do. And I said, well, how do I believe? I want you to tell me. And he had come to Christ. He had come to the to realization that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and that he came to take away the sins of the world. Guess what we found out? His wife wasn't a Christian. And she was out fooling around with another guy. And so that's what you find out. And you know what? The test is for him to live the Christian life still. This is three, four years later. He's still living the Christian life, even though she's walked away from the Lord. So you see those things. People don't always listen. I I don't know 
I mean, anybody have children? <laughs> I mean, it's the same kind of thing. They don't always listen. Um, did you, did you ever have anybody listen to you? I mean, one time, one time, no, uh, and his son is sitting in the back. That's what he, yeah, my son, um, to answer the question in another way, you know, church discipline is an important part, or you could call it church restoration. If your church isn't practicing church discipline, it is very difficult because there's no restraint against them. Um, and that can even be the restraint of, you know, you, you can't be here anymore if you're going against the counsel of the elders. And it depends on if this is a sin issue. Now, if this is advice, that's different. If you're just giving advice. Um, so first of all, and most churches don't have a, a system via Matthew 18, where that process is followed. We do that here. It's very excruciating, and it takes months and months. Uh, But we do see restoration as well. And so that is a help. The other side of that coin is there are many situations that are especially domestic, in-home, where the only way that you know that there's repentance is really when they tell you. You can't tell that in the church. They're not telling other people. That is a very difficult situation. Sometimes that has lasted for years where you continue to, you know, uh, show them what the Word of God says, counsel them, reason with them, you see momentary change, and then within two weeks, it's back to the same old, same old. So that is discouraging, and I think part of that is uh, depending on God for the change, praying, um, being a, a prayer warrior in their life uh, on behalf of them, um, and sometimes, quite frankly, I stop counseling them. Sometimes you have to end that time. In fact, if anything, I think I've been probably too uh, lenient in terms of with the, my time. I've been giving too much time. I, I tend not to give up on anybody. And uh, that might be, I thought it was a strength of mine. It could be a weakness of mine as well. And so there has to be sometimes a due date. And, and, and in that due date... Um, if they don't, if they continue in their sin, again, have to, first of all, acknowledge that it's sin. Uh, if it is sin that's ongoing, and you have to start the process of another person coming in, and then taking them before the church, and then taking them before the elders, it's, um, that's the only thing I can tell you, other than the fact that there is change, uh, and it does happen, and don't be discouraged, because... Um, their salvation doesn't depend on you, praise the Lord. Otherwise, none of us would be in this. If, if, if salvation depended on us or even, even their sanctification depended on us, uh, woe is me because I'm a mere man. But to have hope in the God who is uh, behind that man or woman, to hope, have hope in the God who does change and is the uh, God of all comfort is the meditation that I keep going back to. I think one, one thing that we keep in mind, though, if it's somebody that's not in the church, I think Proverbs thirteen fifteen is, is appropriate for them. The way of the treacherous is hard. This is the warning that you have, that if you keep going in this direction, it's going to be a hard life. It's not going to be uh, a pleasant life. Um, I remember speaking to this daughter of a, a man who was in ministry, and she was going to go to be with a Muslim man. That's what she wanted to do, was to go be. I said, just remember this. This is at the when you get there. It may not be exactly what you think it's going to be. The way of the treacherous is hard, and so uh, there's a warning that we can put out there uh, that if you're not going to live God, well, life God's way, it's going to be hard. Rick, yeah, it's interesting too. I think one one test too when you counsel them is are they going to do the homework? You know, you give them homework to do, and that's a real initial sign. If you see that they're not even doing the homework that you've asked them to do, that should be a red flag right there at the at just at the beginning, and then. So it is, a, it is patience. I think Tom says that sometimes it takes years 
to minister to some people, and it takes a while. It, it requires a lot of patience. Sometimes you really, there's times I've caught myself where you just want to kind of grab them and shake them and start, you know, like, what's going on here? Why don't you listen to me? So it, it can be really frustrating, and really it's, it takes a lot of patience and wisdom from the Lord. Anyway. Question. Practically, um, I actually spoke on church discipline a few years ago at the Shepherds Conference, and at that time we had done 187 church disciplines, and that's a few years ago, uh, and that was from like 1984 until that point. So we we do quite often do church discipline. How does it look? We confront in sin. If I you see your brother in sin, it says go, um, Luke 17:3, go and. Confront him. Show him his sin. If he repents, you've won him. Okay, that's Matthew 18. So, oh, the question is, what does church discipline actually look like? When it goes to the congregation. Well, you got to start, okay, back there where you have the confrontation. Then you go with two, okay? That's Matthew 18, uh, 15, 16. You go with two people. Then, if they're not listening, it goes before the elders, and the elders sit down, all three of us here are elders, and we discuss it. All four, uh, 40 men or 35 men or whatever it is have to agree that we would do church discipline on that person. If one of us doesn't agree, we don't go forward. So that means we have to keep working at it. Maybe we bring another elder in to, to be discussing this with that person. Then a letter, once it is agreed upon, a letter is sent to that person telling them on this date when we have communion, your name is going to be read before the congregation. So somebody's going to get up and and it's going to be whoever does the service. Maybe it's Pastor John. And he's going to say so-and-so, Joe Smith, let's say, is uh, going to be disciplined because he's um, living an adulterous life. And that's, that's all that would be said. It wouldn't be a whole litany of, you know, he's going out with Mary and Susie and this one and that one. It's just his name. He's going to, if you know him, go to him and warn him. That's step three. Then there's months, maybe. Maybe it's uh, two, three, four months. I've even seen it go as far as a year where people are going to that person and continue, and then maybe he'll say, yes, I repent, but then it's not really repentance. And then we... um, uh, we finally take it, step four, when all of the elders agree upon it, and we send them a letter and say, you're no longer welcome at Grace Community Church. You've now been put out of the fellowship. Uh, and it says there in First uh, Corinthians, it says, treat them as an uh, unbeliever, treat them as a tax gatherer. So that's how we're supposed to treat him, and he's not part of our ministry anymore. And the letter is handed to him, or it's sent uh, with a return receipt that he actually got it. Um, I don't think email is a good way to do it. I really don't, because you don't know that they received it. Uh, you don't know that it wasn't somebody else picking up their emails, all of that kind of stuff. You need to hand it to them or send it to them, and that kind of thing. And then they're put out of the church. From the pulpit. The, so the fourth yeah, step again, is, yeah. The Pastor John will then say uh, they are as a tax gatherer or as an unbeliever, and they are no longer a part of our church, and it's with great sadness that we say that. By the way, in that process, what happens many times as the elders are going through the, the name and the situation, and you can get caught up in a lot of the details of what's going on and, and all of the scenarios, eventually one of the elders says, Okay, if we're going to go forward with church discipline, we have to name the sin. 
What's the sin? And sometimes as you're talking about things, it becomes like kind of uh, confused and sometimes uh, amorphous as to what is the sin we're talking about. Sometimes you, they've been in your life for such a long time, he's just a, a bad guy. We, we just don't like the guy. And so you can't just say, yeah, we don't like him anymore, so we're going to discipline him. You know? But sometimes you have to name the sin. And most of the times here at Grace Church, it's Sexual sin, that's usually it. Uh, but sexual sin is not the only sin that we have. You know, it's also any sin, ultimately, that would reach that point. But sometimes it has been um, theft. Sometimes it has been unrepented um, a woman just the other day was taking advantage of people in our church and taking money from them. So we had to, and she would not repent of it. She wouldn't even recognize it as sin, what she was doing, uh, with no intent to repay. So, but anyway, to name the sin is an important part of that process. As a matter of fact, I went back to look at what those sins were that we've done church discipline on. And believe it or not, we actually did church discipline on somebody who was a liar. I, I was surprised because, you know, you can lie around the lie, you know, that kind of thing. But they did put somebody out who was a liar out of Grace Church. And uh, so that can, kind of thing happens. Okay, we've got lots of hands now. I'm going to take my dear friend here because I picked on him unmercifully. So you guys are professional counselors, and that's your ministry. Can you speak to the pastor? I counsel, I preach. How do you navigate that role between pastor, preacher, and then counselor, and then I'm in a small church? And then I end up counseling my friends. How do you, how do you navigate okay. that? First of all, I, I don't see myself as a professional counselor, okay? Uh, although I've been trained, although I'm ACBC certified and I'm a fellow there, I'm there to train others to do the counseling for me. And that's what I would suggest for you. Any pastor who's out there, get your people in your congregation interested in it and send them to an ACBC. Matter of fact, this year it's going to be here at Grace Community Church in October and, and send them to that conference and say, you know what, Let, let's start here. See if you're interested in it. Go listen to what is being said there. But getting others involved in it. You know when I get involved in it? When it is my friend. That's when I get involved in it. When it is somebody who's in my Sunday school class, uh, I've got 400 people in there, and I, I want to make sure that I'm shepherding them because I, I look at Hebrews 13, 17. It says, I'm going to give God an account for their souls, so I better be interested in it. And so that's when I get involved, in, and that's when I begin to do that counseling. Otherwise, it's the people that I've trained who do the counseling. And we have dozens of people around Grace Church who do that. And, and we're, we've got lots of fruit there from that. And we see that all the time. People who are not in church starting to come to church. People who are in the world getting saved. Those kinds of things. I'm going to throw a curveball on that. Um, because first of all, it's very difficult. There's just no way around it. You just have to acknowledge to, <clears throat> to prepare for preaching every Lord's Day, if that's what you do, um, is going to sometimes uh, have to trump uh, certain relationships that you have in terms of counseling. Sometimes you're going to go, if I'm preaching to 400 people today and this has to be done and everybody thinks it's an emergency, sometimes it just can't be an emergency. So I have to, it has to be according to my schedule and time. But, but this is what I want to say where I think is hard. Um, as a pastor, there are definite boundaries we have with people. Though I love them, I can't consider many of them my friends. And I know that's going to sound harsh. I love them, but to enter into a relationship with them that's kind of um, uh, 
different than just a pastor uh, flock relationship is is going to be very tough. It's like my children. You know, my children are my children. They're not my friends. They used to say, my kids used to play basketball with me uh, when I could. <laughs> and they would sit there and say, dude, pass me the ball, dude. And I would go, I'm not your dude. I am your dad. And so I love them. But it is, it is a difficult thing. I think the pastor personally, and Bill has a lot of friends, but <laughs> so does Rick, I'm just kidding. Uh, it's a lonely profession, if you ask me. I mean, I love my family, and I love people, but those people that I become intimate with, I have to, in some ways, guard them from afar so I can be in their life for their betterment, so that I can counsel them in such a way where... I'm not, I will tend to pull punches perhaps if they're truly my friend or in some way will, uh, will generalize something instead of being very specific. So, um, I don't know if you find that to be true, but that's been true in my life for the years that I've been here. I love people. I have friends of mine who are in ministry with me. I consider these men my friends. Uh, but when they're, especially in a small church, I'm sure it's harder, you know, because the town is small and, you know, um, but, but guard against that. Guard against, so, so you can be, for, in other words, the shepherd and they can be the sheep so that you still have that avenue in their life. But the shepherd, uh, the sheep have to know the shepherd's voice. And uh, I, I may approach this a little bit different than Tom, but my wife and I, we have a home that's open. People are always in our house. I mean, they're coming home. And I could go home tonight, and, and my wife could have two or three of her girlfriends there or, or a couple of couples. I mean, it happens all the time. I, I show up at home, and I'm bringing friends over because that's, that's the way we, we want to be. We want to be more intimate with uh, our folks. And... They don't have a problem speaking into my life, and I don't have a problem speaking into their life. If they see that I'm speaking to my wife wrong, hey, Bill, what in the world are you doing? So now go ahead, do that. That's what I think brothers and sisters are supposed to do. Matter of fact, when my kids got saved, I said to them, well, now you're not only my daughter, but now you're my sister. And you have every right to confront me in sin if you see me in sin, because I'm going to do the same for you. And so I, that's the way I look at it. And I think when you're in a smaller church, that's where it happens a lot because you are rubbing shoulders. You're in the same community. You may even live on the same block, all of those kinds of things. Here at Grace Church, it's a little different. You know, people come from all over that uh, come to this church. But I, I still want them to know I'm, I'm there to, hey, you, you want to confront me? Go right. Go, go for it. I'm not saying that you can't play golf with them. <laughs> I'm just saying that when you play golf with them, you still are the pastor. Mm-hmm. You're still their pastor. Sorry. A lot of questions here. Yes. Uh, back to the church discipline thing. Does membership, does formal membership, make any difference uh, when it comes to applying Matthew 18 as you do here at Grace? Um, when it comes to formal membership, does, um, yes, I'm repeating that. When it comes to formal membership, does that make any difference when you do church discipline? Yes and no. Okay, this is how I'm going to answer it. I have done church discipline on people who are not members of Grace Church. And the people that I've done that discipline on are because because if you're a Grace Church and you're going to a fellowship group and your kids are involved in all the ministries and you're going to Men of the Word and your wife is going to EWG and you're involved, you look like a member. You, You look like a member. 
And so we have to do something about that person who looks like a member and they're taking advantage of all these things. They're in a Bible study, but we can't do church discipline on them because they are committing adultery with the women in the church. No, we gotta, we got to do something about that. So those are the people that we would put out of the church. Also, Titus 3.10, that you are to confront the factious man and put him out. If there was such a person like that at the church, even if they're not a member, you want to get rid of them as quickly as possible so that they don't bring dissension. But church discipline is generally for the member, generally. Okay? There's one thing to add to that, which is if you have any kind of means of attendance taking, and I don't know if you do, we have beige cards where people will sign in. They say they're either a member or a regular attender, and they mark that. And we every week we collect those, and we have a system here that keeps account of their attendance. If we can verify that they were in attendance when a church discipline was done, which is on a is traditionally in our, our church is done on a communion Sunday, if we know they're a regular attender and they were present when there was a, a church discipline from the pulpit and they continue to attend, we consider that implied consent. So they are now knowing what we do here in regular attendance here and and are and by their implication of attendance complying with that understanding, then we can go forward and we feel as if that but you know that's a legal matter too that you have to talk to uh, lawyers about. Yes, of yeah. course. <laughs> um, I was once doing church discipline on a lawyer. And Pastor John came to me and said, Bill, please be careful. <laughs> because he's a lawyer. Loopholes. And I went, okay, we were. And he was disciplined, but... Yeah, I was gonna, you just said, I was going to say there are some, we live in a different world today, right? There's a lot of legal issues out there, and so you want to make sure that you're approaching this right when you do discipline somebody, because uh, we live in crazy times. I guess. Yeah, and we've had letters sent to us when a church discipline has been threatened, and they'd say, well, I'm going to sue your church. Fine. You can write the letter. It's not going to mean any difference. We're still going to do church discipline, and uh, we've not been sued for doing church discipline, but only for other things. Yes. So given uh, the fourth step of church discipline, and to put that individual out of the church, it's intended um, for them to come to their senses, and then mm-hmm. hopefully um, they can be restored to the church. What does that look like? That's a very good question. What does the after the fourth step church discipline and them coming back, what does it look like? Well, when I did that message a few years ago for Shepherds, I went to see how many up to that point had we taken back. We had taken eight people back. What does it look like? It looks like them coming to the elders, okay, coming before them and confessing their sin and repenting of it. And that means they're coming to an elders meeting that's closed, and we're asking them questions about what they did and how, what, all of that kind of stuff, and seeing that there would be genuine change. I actually have a young lady in my Sunday school class who was church disciplined many years ago. She's a deaconess now. Okay, she serves in the body of Christ. She's been restored, all of those things. And their name is reread from the pulpit at a communion saying, so-and-so has repented, and they have come back into the body of Christ, and we accept them with arms open. Now, we've also had people that have been church disciplined, and they show up. Could you imagine we couldn't get, we didn't see them for a few weeks? <laughs> I mean, think about the number of people that come into the church. And one time I'm coming out of an elder's prayer time with another elder, and he says, Bill, can you come with me? And he confronted somebody that he did church discipline on, said, we put you out of the church. That means you're not welcome here until you repent. 
And so we just escorted him off the campus. So that, that kind of thing happens. Um, anything else on fourth step? No, it's just it's good to have a security team. Yeah. <laughs> so true. Uh, a, a clarification, was that eight out of 184? Yeah, eight. Wow. Eight. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Ah, good question. I, I don't I don't know that we have a tracking system yet. We're we're, we're speaking we're speaking yeah. with yes. I'm going to do that. If somebody's disciplined out of another church and they come here, do we know that? I, I, it would be impossible unless that church calls us. If they move to Utah, we're sending them to the Mormons. So we don't. You know, um, no, I. You know, we would not have that availability or that opportunity. Um, to be able to do that. You know what I mean? It's, uh, we have had, I had a, a woman in my office once and she said, I, I had church discipline on a, from a church up in Simi Valley and uh, would you accept me into membership here? I said, no. I said, but I, what I will do is I'll go back with you to that church, get your church discipline dealt with, repentance and all of that, and, and then you could come to Grace Church if they accepted you back there. Correct. There is. Yes. Yeah, there is a question of have you ever been church disciplined before? And people lie. And then sure. I've had a man come back to me after maybe a week or two and say, I, I just want to tell you, I wasn't completely forthright. I actually have been church disciplined before. It was many years ago. In which case, well, thank you very much. And so then we followed up with the other church. And indeed, uh, he was still not in good relationship with that church. And so we didn't allow him to join. He was still attending. And in that particular case, which was very, very sad, he ended up being a predator. He ended up being a, a, a child predator. And we had to have him go off of this campus via security. But if he had not come to us, because again, people are going to lie. People like that will lie, obviously. Um, and there's no means for us to know it. And we don't do a, a fact check, background check on everyone who becomes a member. It's a great idea, but uh, we don't. And if someone is church disciplined from here and they go off to Idaho or someplace, we don't even know they've moved. We don't even know to contact whoever it would be. So it's really on their own conscience. Uh, sometimes a church will contact us and say, this person is uh, coming to our church. They were from your church. Is everything good to go? They need a letter of commendation. That's a really good idea. You know, if you're if somebody's coming to the church to have that verification. That's why the early church did it. You had a letter and you brought it to the new church that you go to. That'd be great. Uh, impossible these days. <laughs> yes, sir. What do you think of requiring elders to be ACBC certified? You'll have to answer that because I can't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, just Rick, why don't you speak? I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. See, uh, see how we deferred. All We're the dodging way. in here. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm here too many years. <laughs> I'd, I'd say to require it would probably be uh, an interesting thing to do if they weren't seminary trained, for instance. So if you have an elder who's not seminary trained, that would be a good suggestion because they might not have the apparatus to know how to apply. You know, we, Bill actually teaches a, a 
class here that has a counseling one, two, and three, I would at least have them go through something like that, which is, uh, we call this here, uh, it's been called Logos classes over the years, but now it's called Grace Equip. And so I think that's a great suggestion to go through as a pastor with them, if you don't have a class, to go with um, them step by step through maybe a three or four month opportunity to learn, which is what he does and, and how to equip people. But to require that I would like to see personally if they wanted to do that. I would like if they. I would encourage it definitely, but I, I don't know if I would require it. Back in uh, 1989 and back in 1991, it was required. Okay, and they didn't get the elders to do it because these elders are busy men. How can they take off from work or their travels to be in a sales position or doctors or lawyers or judges or whatever? And so we couldn't, you couldn't make them come to the class because the class in those days was on Monday mornings. And so you'd have Monday mornings from nine o'clock until one o'clock. And then we'd start doing counseling from one o'clock until nine o'clock. And so that was required at that point, And you couldn't make, you could get them to do that. So that was way back when, um, and today it's, uh, it's open if they want to come. Um, I think it's important myself. I really do because I think there's a sort of a protocol. I mean, for how many are certified here? Biblical counselors. See, got a few of them. And so th- that's what I would say is a, a good thing to do, but, um, to require it is difficult. And, and I think we would all agree with that to require it of our elders is difficult. Now it can be done. I mean, I, I matter of fact, this morning at six o'clock, I was teaching in Berlin. You didn't even know I came back from Berlin this morning, <laughs> but you can do it on Skype. It's easy to do those kinds of th- things. Zoom, I do that on Zoom. Th- those kinds of things, you can do it, and, and you can see a group get certified. Now, we also go through an ordination process here to have a person become an elder. So whether you're a seminary elder or, I mean, that you went to seminary or you're just a lay elder, which means you have a regular job, but you never attended Bible college or anything like that. And that includes different areas like uh, church history. It includes uh, theology. It includes practical counseling. So you could actually maybe incorporate some of that into just the requirements of being an elder. I mean, we just want to make sure that they're biblically fit, not only above reproach, but that they have a mind for Christ and know the scriptures. And so you could do it maybe that way, but to have the existing elders be required to do it, that would be tough. Last year, Rick was going to my class. Yeah, I haven't finished. I'm confessing. (laughs) (laughs) He was there. And I don't know. Did you do any papers? I don't remember. Yeah, I did. Okay. But it's it's hard. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to keep up with all of that. Bill, is it online now? Can can ACBC stuff be done online? Do you Um, know of? I was just curious. You could watch the videos. But you can't have your questions answered. Yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> that's the, that's the, the problem with my in fact. My son-in-law is, has a satellite uh, seminary in Washington D.C., and uh, he had, was doing that. And the the students in the class walk, got up and walked out. Yeah, they said, "No, we need to ask questions because they're doing they're dealing with real life things. They're pastors, and they've got this woman who's doing this, and they got to ask a question. They can't do that of a video." So um, he asked me to go there for two weeks and teach. So that's that's why you don't do the videos. Yeah. You can, but it's yeah, not it fully um, effective. Uh, a question here. Sure. Sure. Thank you for asking. 
We have two. We have Sunday school classes on Sunday mornings. Um, we have we have some for really young kids. Uh, oh, what yeah. does what does special ministries look like on Sunday morning? Thank you. Uh, we have a class for really young kids, like maybe like three, four, five year olds, and then we have older another class for older kids. And really, the classes are really not any different than a normal Sunday. We teach the Bible. Uh, we have worship time. We have prayer time. They're just unique people. They're just unique. But uh, and then we have a Tuesday night outreach that we've been doing for years. Um, it's like a wanna would be for uh, for or I guess I should say adventure club for for disabled disabled people and uh, yeah. How many do you have in there? We can have a hundred. Yeah, yeah, on a Tuesday night. So it's been really great. And we have a gym. Obviously, we have games here. We can teach the Bible. Uh, we can uh, worship time. And that's been a blessing. And that gives the parents a night off, uh, give them a little respite from their kids. And then we have a camps, summer camps. Yeah. They, they also have um, caregivers that come who aren't even believers. Right. And they're listening to the message as well. And so they're being really a blessing. the gospel. So it's really yeah. good. Good question. Thank you. Quinton. Uh, we're not Richard Baxter, that's for sure. Yeah, right. That's what I thought. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I when I read Baxter's book, uh, The Reformed Pastor, what am I doing? I mean, really, you know, when he visits them three times a year, each one, and catechizes them. And and I was driving a Mustang at the time, and I said, he didn't even have a Mustang. He had a horse, you know. <laughs> And so you know, that, that, that's convicting to me. <clears throat> that's why I like to have people to my home. It's easier to have them to my home. And, um, uh, and, and that's why Sunday afternoons I have premarital couples come over. We talk about things. And, and then during the summer we have lots of folks coming over. I, I, visitation is probably the more difficult thing to do here in L.A. because of the traffic. You know, it's, it's, it's really case by case. If you have elders and pastors that we have here, they have fellowship groups. So we each have a, a group that's about 200 people. It's almost like a mini church. So we're responsible immediately for those people. That's, that's just our ministry. Right. And so within that group of people, also we have Bible studies that break down from the, those groups. And so we have Bible study shepherds that allow us information about what's going on with the people in a more hands-on way. We meet on meetings every month about what's going on in our Bible studies. And then uh, we shepherd people and visit them case by case on that level. But then when you go to the macro level of Grace Church, our responsibilities change there. It's really about us, again, it's going out to people who reach out to us. I try to have people come here to my office. Um, I, I try to have them uh, make, if it's that important, I want them to schedule time to do it. Yes, most of my Sundays are counseling because people are already here. And so as soon as I get done preaching, even this Sunday, I go into a counseling situation, two of them. Uh, sometimes we all have done that even at night service where you have to go out of the night service to meet with someone. Uh, if you're not the one preaching, it's just very difficult. Um, but to have a system of visiting people uh, that aren't going through counseling situations, that's, again, I think it's man-by-man, counselor-by-counselor. Um, and I don't have a system myself of doing that. It's just sometimes you just think, I mean, how many times have people said to you, love to have you over? 
And, you know, I'd love to come over too, but it's just incredibly difficult. But you schedule something and you do it. And then you find out when you go there that it wasn't just because they wanted to see how you're doing. (laughs) They wanted to let you know that, by the way, they're thinking about divorce. And so it becomes like a whole thing. So I think it would be a beautiful uh, opportunity for us to do that, to schedule that. I've thought of that. The best I can say that what I do is that I visit Bible studies. So I will go to different Bible studies in the group that I shepherd, and that way you're making an appearance and getting to know people, but breaking it down from there has been difficult. I think the culture in Southern California prohibits that to some degree. I think if you're in a different kind of culture, you may be able to have those accomplish those kinds of, of uh, issues. Um, and so I, I think that's what makes it troubling for us. We want to do it. We want to be there. But, I mean, I've got people that are all the way down in Orange County. Okay. That's about on a Friday night, three hours away. Okay. It could be two hours away on Sunday. It's 45 minutes, but you know, it's traffic. And then I've got people that are, I have all the way out in Ventura County that are in my Sunday school class. So it's, it's, um, you know, it's very difficult to get around. This is something that we should do. And our fellowship group, what we did last summer was open up the Sundays to after the Sunday services, the two services on Sunday morning that we'd have a lunch with some people out in the uh, uh, area over here. And my wife and I did that three, four, five times. And we met with some people. We had lunch with them. We talked about issues. And that was a way to get to know some folks. Um, But, yeah, it's a struggle. It's a struggle. And I think even if you're in a small church, it's going to be a struggle. ACBC, Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. It used to be called NANC, National Association of Neuthetic Counselors. First of all, it was no longer national, it was international. And when you got to the word neuthetic, they always asked, what in the world is that? And uh, I'm a neuthetic counselor. My wife is a nowthetic counselor. Get it done now. (laughs) Uh, That's uh, through an association that... um, uh, if you go online, uh, Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, uh, Dale Johnson is the director of that, and uh, it's quite large. It's getting larger. Okay, when they have the conference here next year, they expect close to three thousand, which uh, will be quite nice to see that. Yes, sir. What are the requirements for membership? Like uh, expectations of ACBC? Oh, Grace, is make sure that you speak to Tom. <laughs> He's saying that because I was the membership pastor for nine years here. Um, <clears throat> that you're a believer and that you've been baptized. That's really the requirement. Uh, the expectation is involvement. The expectation is that you're going to be in a fellowship group, in a Bible study. Again, it's not... We don't hold people to that in terms of a type of legalism uh, because that could be very dangerous for us to do that. We want it to be from their heart because they want to, but that is the expectation that you'd be involved. And we have to preach that all the time here, you know, about the one another's. And we have to preach all the time about if you're, you know, Hebrews 10, if you're not a part of the church and, and, and rubbing elbows with one another and ministering with one another. I always try to even warn people because now I deal with a lot of death. You know, I've seen so many people that we're the only people that come to their side, 
you know, or in, with their shut-ins uh, when they're sick and dying. They have not built any kind of community of believers around them at all. And it's just so, I, so I try to warn people ahead of time. You know, I know that you might live in Los Angeles and I know you have three jobs and I know that you get here on Sunday morning, you come a little late and then you leave a little early. And the only ministry, we call it a pew ministry. All you have is just the person next to you. People tend to sit in the same place every Sunday. You know, there's not a signed seating yet, but it's been that way. And so we try to help people to see that that's, that's really a, a famine in your life. And you have to be encouraged to uh, take, take your own spiritual walk seriously. And when the Lord is commanding us to come alongside one another and to pray for one another, forgive one another, what context does that happen in? So, um, but you would think, you know, many people accuse Grace Church in the past of being legalistic. And it's so far from the truth. Grace, there's a lot of grace at Grace Church. And so if you're a believer, and, you know, all we can do by that is through uh, uh, interviews, through questions, through examining your life, and have been baptized as a believer, uh, John MacArthur always says, uh, it's no harder to become a member of Grace Church than it is to get to heaven. <laughs> so, you know, that, that's pretty much how it has to be. So. Yeah, it's interesting. I counsel with a couple who were at Grace Church for 11 years, going to church nearly every Sunday, and and uh, they were having trouble. <clears throat> so I asked them, what fellowship group are you in? They weren't in one. What Bible study are you in? They weren't in one. And I said, well, who do you know around Grace Church? They were silent for a few minutes, and they said, John MacArthur. And I said, well, how many times has John had you over for lunch? I said, no, no, not like that. We know him because he's in the pulpit. Could you imagine being at a church for 11 years and you do not know anyone? It's very common. I said, folks, this is a problem. You need to get integrated into the body of Christ. You, you need to know these other people. And that's what happens when they go to die and they don't know anybody. They don't have anybody that's in the Christian community that can, can minister to them. I do funerals, <clears throat> memorials for people where uh, you do a lot of them too, yeah. where uh, the people that show up are basically our staff. And, and it's not because they're so old. It's that when the name is read and we try to be gracious and say, you know, a faithful member because their attendance was ongoing, but they, they didn't build for themselves a life of, of, of Christ with other people here. So, again, you try to proclaim that. You try to teach them. You know, it's almost like your children. You try to warn them ahead of time. But whether they, you know, do or don't, it's very hard to enforce so again, we don't sit there and go, if you don't go to Bible study, you can't be a member of Grace Church. But then again, we always talk about the greatness of being with one another. I, I don't know what time this is supposed to be over, but... So oh, then they can, you can be late there. I don't know who they are. <laughs> just, just, just say, Bill said, can, can we please have forgiveness? Your question. I actually changed the name of our counseling ministry. Um, what, what's the difference between discipleship and biblical counseling? I changed the name from biblical counseling ministry to discipleship counseling because I see it as I'm coming alongside that person to try to help them become a better Christian, uh, walking with the Lord in, in, a, in a more sincere way. Um, that's what I. That's why I look at it as it's not a not just a top down. Let me just feed you some Bible verses and some some truth. But I, I want them to understand. I'm going to come alongside, be their friend, and, and point them in the right direction. More like Christian on the road to uh, the celestial city kind of thing. But practically speaking, just like, you know, that's the definition. But practically speaking, discipleship here is seen as being with one another, 
sharpening one another when there are no issues going on. Yeah. It's an ongoing process. When I first got saved, uh, my the man who led me to Christ discipled me for a year. And so every Monday night, I was at his house. We had dinner. We went into uh, theology. We went through a navigator's kind of booklet. He, he quizzed me on Bible the, um, verses that I was to memorize. I had like 52 verses I had to memorize in that year. And it was just a really, and then afterwards, we'd go for a walk and we'd talk about application. To me, that's discipleship. Counseling is usually uh, the origin or catalyst of it is an issue, an issue that you know they come mm-hmm. to you on or you see in their life and you go to them on. But So that's how but I differentiate it. I know that you're certified in ACBC and you know that the process is to get them to the point of being a disciple. If you're going to teach them, they should be turning into a disciple. And that means that it's not just in that one hour or one and a half hours that you have in the room, but it's when you see each other on the church campus. I mean, I have my counselees come up to me all the time and we talk about, you know, music. Or we talk about baseball or we talk about whatever. They're my friend. They don't they don't see me as just somebody that's going to give them, you know, the, you know, taking the dump truck and moving up and just dumping all the information on them. But it's a life on a life. It's getting involved with them. And so that's that's what I want to see is that discipleship get to that point. The discipleship counseling get to that point. It's life on a life. Yes, sir. How is an elder at Grace connected to their fellowship group? Well, I am in partnership with Carl Hargrove. There's two of us that are the pastors over the group, the elders. But we also have other elders in there. They're called lay elders. You know what a lay elder is. You don't? don't? Okay, they're good for nothing. (laughs) You know what I mean by that, right? They don't get paid. Ah, you thought I was, yeah, I'm not getting fired. Uh, they're, they're good for nothing. The rest of us get paid to be good. They're good for nothing. We're paid to be good. Um, so that's the difference. And we, we are ministering, okay, uh, in that group to them. And, and those lay elders are supposed to be able to teach. Yeah, that's one of the qualifications. And so they should be able to get up and do that. Like in our fellowship group, we have a three, three you know, four, four, four elders. Four elders yeah. uh, two of us are employed by the church and two of them are lay elders. So uh, John Street is employed by the Masters University. Bob Houghton, who is another one of our elders, is a lay elder who's in retirement. But four of us are in that group, and, and the three of us really share the preaching responsibilities, and the others are there just to support. Good question. All right. I think we're going to call this the end. Thank Gentlemen, you guys have for a coming. great conference. If you have any other questions, you can come up to us here. So thanks. Thank you, guys.